Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hi there, everyone, and welcome to a bonus episode of Art Curious. Today, I'm happy to share with you an excellent conversation that I had over the summer with Patrick Bringley, the author of the wonderful book, All the Beauty in the World, the Metropolitan Museum of Art and Me, which is a revelatory portrait of the Met and its treasures by a former New Yorker staffer who spent a decade working as a museum guard. Millions of people climb the grand marble staircase to visit the Metropolitan Museum of Art every year, but only a select few have unrestricted access to every nook and cranny. They are the guards who roam unobtrusively in dark blue suits, keeping a watchful eye on the two million square foot treasure house. Caught up in his glamorous fledgling career at The New Yorker, Patrick Bringley never thought he'd be one of them. Then his older brother was diagnosed with cancer, and he found himself needing to escape the mundane clamor of daily life. So he quit The New Yorker and sought solace in the most beautiful place he knew. To his surprise and to the listener's delight, this temporary refuge becomes Bringley's home away from home for a decade. We follow him as he guards delicate treasures from Egypt to Rome, strolls the labyrinths beneath the galleries, wears out nine pairs of company shoes, and marvels at the beautiful works in his care. Patrick Bringley worked for 10 years as a guard at the Met, and prior to that, he worked in the editorial events office at The New Yorker. He lives with his wife and children in Brooklyn, and All the Beauty in the World is his first book. Without further ado, let's get into it and meet Patrick and get that one-of-a-kind behind-the-scenes look at one of the most famous museums in the world. Enjoy. Patrick Bringley, welcome to Art Curious. Oh, thanks so much for having me. I am so happy to have you and to talk about your wonderful book here. I want to begin by talking about the impetus behind First of all, not only this book, but this career change you made, because you were working at The New Yorker, you were in your mid-20s, but then you had a terrible family tragedy that brought things to a turning point. Can you set the scene for our listeners today about how you ended up working at The Met? Sure. Yeah, I got a job at The New Yorker right out of college, working for their events department. And of course, it wasn't a job writing for The New Yorker or something, but I felt very pleased. I felt like I was kind of at the center of the world. It's the type of job that a humanities major might want. And there were many things that were very rewarding about the job, but it was also the case that it was an office job that was full of office politics and maybe smaller minded concerns like many an office job. <laughs> yeah. And while I was there, my brother got ill. He got ill with cancer and it became clear at some stage that it wasn't something that he was going to beat really. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden I was spending all this time away from the office in by hospital beds and in Tom's apartments and spending time with my family. And it was such a contrast to this sort of striver's world where you're working at this magazine where all these people want to fight to get little pieces in their talk of the town or whatever. And all of that suddenly 
began to feel very frivolous compared to this world where things seemed to be, they were very sad, of course, but there was also this great simplicity to it, this great sort of beauty to it, this great kind of rubber meets the road dealing with the crux of what it means to be a person. Um, and I, when my brother died, I didn't have much of an appetite to try to just go back to the world where we were all hustling for professional advancement or something like that. I didn't have the stomach to do that. And I thought about what I might do that would be very different. What made you choose the Met? I know at the beginning of your book, you talk a little bit about your interest in it and your relationship to it. But tell us a little bit about how that thought process went. What made you choose the Met? Yes. So I've always loved arts. I did not study it formally. I did a little bit during college, but mostly I was taking just a grab bag of different liberal arts type things. But I grew up in a household where my mom loved arts. We would go, I grew up in Chicago. We would go to the Art Institute of Chicago all the time. And so I was always aware of it. I always have been someone who likes to think big thoughts about poetry and arts and all sorts of things. So I had been to the Met many times because I went to college in New York and I've been here since then. And I had noticed the guards, of course. And when I went to NYU, I had a work study job where I worked in the library of the, of the Institute of Fine Arts, which is on the Upper East Side near the Met. And my boss at that job had been a guard before. So he put that idea in my mind as well. But mostly I just thought about what can I do that would be nourishing for my soul and my heart and my mind? What could I do that would allow me to think my thoughts, to stretch out my mind a little bit, to not just be on some treadmill of one kind or another? And I thought, well, what if I do this sort of lovely and straightforward and honest job in you know, the most beautiful place I can think of? I love that. I love your point about wanting to have something that's that's nourishing to your soul, because I think it obviously worked out. You ended up staying there for 10 years. I think that some people sometimes find that shocking. That's a long time to be anywhere, let alone in a museum guard position where you're standing all day long. And I'm sure people are always saying, like, how can you stand all day without getting tired? But I listeners to Art Curious know this. I My background is that I was a curator for 13 years in an art museum here in North Carolina. So I understand and I have seen my share of people who stay and are at museums for decades, and that includes guards. Can you give us a look at what your typical day was like? What was your everyday like as a guard? What was your experience? Yeah, I mean, one of the things that kept me there for 10 years is in some ways, all your days are the same, but in some ways they are radically different, mm. radically new every day. One day I'd be sent to ancient Egypt and the next day I'd be sent to modern art. And the next day I'd be spending it with the Chinese hand scrolls and the Asian art. The Met is so inexhaustibly huge, right. but it would be true even in a much smaller museum that there's so much inside these objects, inside these cultures, so many different angles in which you can look at these things, so much that you can consider, different frames that you can throw at these things, not to mention all the people watching and all the mm -hmm. interacting with people, that there is something that's dynamic and ever-changing about 
your days. Mm -hmm. But to answer your question more explicitly, what I would do in a day is I'd be assigned a section, then I would go to the section chief and I would get my posts for the day. The way it works at the Met, you've got three posts and then there's on a four man or four man and woman team that are rotating among those posts and one person goes on to a break. But you are spending an hour and a half on the floor and then a half, half hour off and then another hour and a half on the floor. And over the course of eight or 12 hour days, most of what you're doing is just keep keeping your eyes open and your head up and being present in the moment, not thinking about some project that you're working on. That's not the sort of thing you do as a guard. You just are observing the world around you, including the art, including the people, and there to make sure that all is well. Also, of course, things happen. People are touching things. People are asking questions. Mm -hmm. They're being rowdy. They're feeling ill and falling on the floor or, or whatever it is that happens over the course of a day. But the reality is that even when there are many things happening, there's time. <laughs> there's yeah. time, there's hours to write a book in your head, which I suppose is also what kept me there, that I felt like I had this incredible freedom of mind. I I think that's incredible. And I love it. It made me laugh in a wonderful way that's both, I think, a surprise and also a laugh of acknowledgement when you talked about how there were in one particular section, 8,435, whatever the number is, particular works that are in the Egyptian section, something like that. And you had a little line about, oh, yes, I've counted because you've had that time to actually be there and be able to mentally catalog everything in your mind. One of the hardest jobs I've ever had was in one of those circumstances where you had a big exhibition or a building opening and it was all hands on deck. And so everyone, regardless of their position at a museum, had to take a turn as a museum guard for about a three or two hour period. And I have to say that was one of the most intense two hours of my life, just for exactly what you're saying. You're not supposed to be or you're trying not to daydream or think about anything else. You're just observing. And that is hard work. Did you find that to be a real challenge at the beginning? I don't think so. I think that I immediately, perhaps because of what I had just been through in my personal life, I felt very open to things, to the world. I was very open-hearted in my slightly shell-shocked sort of a way. So I find, found that I reveled in this idea, you know, let's not just be inside my head right now. Let's, it's a big world out there. There are a lot of people that, you know, suffer and have joys and have fears and whatever else. And here I am in a place where people from all different cultures throughout the history of the world have reflected on these kind of marvelous and splendid and also sad and poignant things about this world that we live in. So let's just stay open to this. Let's wander from gallery to gallery and really observe this stuff. And you said that you're not meant to daydream, but of course you daydream. <laughs> in a way, you that's part of that's part of the job in a way, because in order to keep you not from going crazy or, or you have to have things going in your mind and in a way that I don't know that helps you be alert because it helps you be alive to the world rather than just collapsed into yourself but yeah it's interesting that you said that's great that they had you guys do that sometimes because mm -hmm. 
I, it would occur to me sometimes, man, in a perfect world, the curators would be spending one day a week or even one day a month if you wanted to be conservative about it, just being in the galleries yes. with nothing at on their desk, with no, oh my God, we got to get this loan from this institution. Because of course, in a way, in an ironic way, it's the guards who aren't making much money who are the ones that are spending all the time with the arts and yeah. just observing and absorbing and letting it steep in them and looking at it from all different angles and all different moods. And I, I hope what my book is partially about is the value of that, the value of looking at art, not with just a kind of instrumental mindset. I'm a curator and I'm studying this and I want to figure out X, Y, and Z about it, but rather to just live with the stuff. Absolutely. No, I think in a perfect world, that is a brilliant idea. And I highly recommend to anyone, if they've ever had the opportunity to go and spend that much time in a few galleries, that is such a gift. And again, it's also a challenge. But I am with you. I think when people ask what it's like to be a museum curator, I think they have this romantic view of us walking through the galleries, just looking at the art under our purview, which is so rare. I think people sometimes can take the opportunity to go and make sure that they walk around. But most of the time I was stuck in my meetings or my desk. So you are right. The guards are the ones that get to really take that time, that slow art movement that's always being bandied about. You guys live that in so many ways. One of the things I really enjoyed about the book is that you make this point about relationships very clear. And I, I actually mean this in a few different ways pertaining to the museum, because first there's the relationship between you and also the visitors or museum goers, but then also the relationship between all of us, you as a whole, and the art. And I wanted to start out with the visitor, because that's something that you were, I think, alluding to just a moment ago, which is that guards tend to be the first line of defense. So you are the ones that get, I think, the majority of the questions and the comments from the general public if they want to engage and talk or ask things about a particular work of art. What was that experience like for you? Yeah, I always enjoyed that. I think there is something wonderful, even about how the guards of the Met are dressed, because we're in these suits that are nondescript, and they're clearly not very nice suits. There's something a little bit ratty about them, or just polyester and rough and coarse, and they don't fit that great. So it makes it, we are there as, we look dignified, but we also look approachable. We're not some fancy person that you have to feel like, oh, is my question too dumb to ask this person? Yeah. So I think as a result, people assume that we're going to be sympathetic to them, whatever they happen to believe or feel. So it's funny, sometimes you'll be working in an exhibition and someone will come up to you and say, isn't this the most beautiful thing you've seen in all your life? And then someone and assume that you agree with them. And then <laughs> someone else will come up to them and say, oh, my God, buddy, can you believe that they're calling this art? My nephew <laughs> could make that or whatever the case may be. And there's uh, an every person quality to that. I find that people do talk to guards a lot, particularly people who come to museums alone. I found were often the people who would end up chewing my ear because they are just wandering through as a solitary individual, just like we are. And they would see something 
and maybe it would strike them as extremely beautiful and they wouldn't quite know even what to make of that but they get that sort of feeling that you get sometimes that you're just like my god look at that and they feel like they have to discharge that feeling somehow they have to express something and they see you standing there in the corner and if you have a certain look on your face where you look amenable to people speaking to you then all of a sudden you're engaged in this conversation you also get people who i talk about the book in the book people who have no idea what's going on yeah they go to the met because they know it's a famous place and maybe it's their first visit to new york or maybe their first visit to any big city and they don't know if there are dinosaurs there they don't know (laughs) if we have the mona lisa they don't know if anything that they're seeing is real and i always enjoy those conversations too because It's my sort of view that, you know, we are all horribly ignorant about the world because the world is so big and so old and has so many components. And these people happen to not know anything about art. There's plenty of things that I know nothing about. And if they have a certain mindset, then they can have this sort of almost life changing conversation as you're explaining to them something about the history of China or something. And they just have no idea that thousands of years old or whatever the case might be and i always i think that all of us should feel spun around and wide-eyed and bewildered inside the mets even if you're the director of that place that's how you should feel because none of us really have our minds wrapped around more than a fraction of what's in there it's so vast i laughed out loud that you when you were mentioning about this the dinosaurs because that was something that truly never occurred to me that people would go into the met and then be thinking or conflating it in their mind with a natural history museum but that makes perfect sense and so i was grateful that you opened my eyes to that but i also think that it's wonderful because you have the opportunity if people come and they ask you those kind of questions, you have the opportunity to almost pitch in and help them in that way. You're having these conversations. You're able to give them information. There's more coming up next right after this break. Want to listen ad-free? Join Patreon for the cost of a cup of coffee. Visit patreon.com slash artcurious and we will be right back. Welcome back to Art Curious. I'm imagining that there are multiple times in which A frazzled parent would be like, please help me. If there are no dinosaurs, should I go see something else? And that you could recommend the arms and armor. So I love that. There's that wonderful approachability that you're talking about. I'm sure you have spared anxiety for many people. Oh, yes. There's I think every guard has the go to of what they recommend to a parent who's looking around and was wait, are there interactive laser displays? Is there like a (laughs) part where my kids can touch something? What is the deal with this place? Um, And you're like, oh, go see the go see the mummies, go see the armor. They're going to have a ball. Absolutely. That's great. Great recommendations all the way around. One of the things that I wanted to ask you is just about your own relationship to the art. How did your relationship to art change over the 10 years that you were at the Met? And around that, do you have one particular moment that sparked any particular realization in you or a change in your mindset? Yeah, I was assigned, my home section was the European paintings, the old master paintings. And that meant that I would spend about half my days there. I spent my first four months there and then about half my days there afterwards. And I was very happy to be there initially because 
I found a lot of solace and sort of incredible resonance in these old master 14th century pictures of the passion, which is just an old word that means suffering, and these sort of luminously beautiful pictures that are about what seems to me the bedrock of human existence, especially at that time when I had just sat at someone's bedside for a long time. I found in those adoration pictures and those lamentation pictures, just literally unspeakable beauty. And I think that was my initial relationship with the art, this sort of, what can you even say, this sort of speechless relationship with some of these great paintings. But then as I worked there longer, I had the incredible privilege of just going from one section to another. And sometimes your feeling when you get to those sections is I don't know, uh, this stuff is so different than what I'm used to. Mm. And sometimes in the exact same section, you will have the feeling, but this is also stuff that's made by human hands and is about kind of basic human things. So sometimes you feel it's very relatable. And sometimes you feel that it's highly alien. It's highly different. And that could be true in the Egyptian arts or true in the Asian arts or what have you. So I think I was able to realize that that, to me, is the essential kind of relationship that I have with art, that I like to sometimes see myself in it and really put in my own two cents and wrestle with it and realize that this is about things that are dear to me as well. And then sometimes to feel like, put myself aside, I just want to feel as small as I can and as non Um, present as I can, because I just want to lose myself in the fact that this is from the ancient Near East, from people who had totally different presumptions about the world than I have. So to give an example of something that sort of a turning point for me, I dearly love the the Chinese hand scroll paintings. Me too. They're so so beautiful. And there's such a variety in them because they're made over the span of hundreds of years. And sometimes they're The painting is very tight and sometimes it's very loose and calligraphic. But I remember it just occurring to me like, okay, so this is a hand scroll that is meant to be held in somebody's hands and slowly turned. So I'm going to try to look at it like that. I'm not going to look at it like a European easel painting where you take in the whole thing all at once. But I'm going to walk to the right side of this 20 foot long hand scroll and I'm going to slow before the gallery is open or whatever. And I'm just going to slowly walk the 20 foot length of the hand scroll. And when you do that, you realize like clearly this was a work of art that had a time component. Like a movie has a time dimension or a symphony has a time dimension. Mm-hmm. And also you realize that if you do the work, you can enter into that hand scroll. You almost shrink down into this landscape. And you're walking along this mountainous landscape or this riverscape along with the master that painted it. And you're looking at this master who painted it and you can see every single brushstroke that was made a thousand years ago on this silk with ink or with paint. And you realize that you're not only melding with this landscape, you're clearly melding with the master because they're the ones who perceived this landscape. And clearly what we're viewing, is it's been gone through their mind to reach us. Mm. And it can be just an extraordinary experience. And then you come to realize, wait, a rectangle on a wall 
which we're so used to, what, that's not the default of what art is. We are grow up with that, so we think that is common. But in fact, around the world, that's not common at all. Mm-hmm. And it opened up you know, my mind to what can be done with visual art and to the sheer variety of kind of different mindsets you have to get into to really tap into the art and the mat. I think that makes you a perfect person to give advice to people who maybe aren't very familiar with what it's like to be in an art museum. So what kind of advice would you have to someone who is visiting an art museum for the first time? I always give this, I always give a two-track piece of advice. I think that the first thing you want to do in an art museum, especially a huge museum like the Met, is the first obligation is just to get lost. The first obligation is to try to feel small, try to walk around enough that your, whatever thoughts that you brought into the museum with you, that they begin to melt away from your head and just look from the oceanic art to the ancient American art to the Picassos to whatever the case may be, and just be like, wow, the world is big and various and old and has so many different colors and textures and components. And isn't it marvelous that I exist in such a vast and bewildering universe? Because I think that's something an art museum offers that our day-to-day life often does not offer. We are stuck inside our own heads because we have things to do. But you are here in a museum. you got nothing to do. Just wander around trying to feeling a sense of largeness enter your soul. But then I do think at some point you want to flip your mind back on and say, another thing that I want to do here is assert myself. I want to look at the ancient Egyptians who are thinking about death and what do I think about death and do I think they're right or wrong about this and use this as a whetstone to hone your own thoughts about things that might be rather important but that you might not think on a day-to-day life wrestle with the art and use it to learn things and to learn what you think and feel And then along a similar vein, I also always recommend that people pick favorites because I think that my mom always, when we went to the Art Institute, she would have us pick a favorite in every gallery. And I still try to do that. And I do that with my kids because it sharpens your eye a little bit, but it also teaches you to pay attention to your own responses. One thing that I felt that I was able to do at the Met is really learn how to pay attention to what's happening in my chest and in my mind as I'm looking in front at a work of art. Like, if I do I think this is beautiful? I can tell by my response, my sort of involuntary response, if I think this is beautiful. And I think becoming attuned to that makes you more open. It also makes you wiser about your preferences and what it is that you find meaningful, that you find substantive. And I think there's a lot of value for discovering that um, about yourself. And I would recommend doing all those things. (laughs) So I hope you got a lot of time. (laughs) Absolutely. No, I find this to be very insightful and it's wonderfully thoughtful and very, I love that you keep using the words open and expansive because so many times I feel that people feel like they need to understand or relate to a work of art in just one way, which I don't believe should be the case at all. And so I love the idea that you can come in and choose a favorite or you can question what 
what's trying to be shown to you and that you don't have to like it or just looking really is one of the most important things. So I think this book is wonderful. I think it's very beautifully written. I think it's inspiring. And I hope that our listeners today will go out and grab copies for themselves. Before we end today, I have just a couple more questions. The first is, what are you up to and what is next for you now? Yeah, so I am trying to cheat together enough part-time work giving talks. I've had the privilege of going to some museums and I'm continuing to do that. And also giving tours. I'm giving private and some public tours at the Met that's from a guard's perspective because I want to write another book. Nice. I, I don't know exactly what that book is going to be, but I know that I have to give myself enough breathing room to think some new thoughts, be, have some new experience, live some more life before I do write it. I so love it. I, yes. So I hope that I'll be able to continue doing that. And otherwise, I'm raising a couple of kids and living life in Brooklyn. That sounds pretty darn good. And I love this idea of being gentle on yourself and your time as well. I think that's really also inspiring. So where can folks find you for the meantime? Sure. So my website is patrickbringley.com, also metmuseumbook.com. And I'm on Instagram at Patrick Bringley. I've been doing this series of people. It's called My Favorite Picture. And people send me what their favorite picture is in any medium any time period, as long as they don't know who I, don't know who made it, not from their cousin, but, <laughs> and then I send them back questions and they answer the questions. And I've been learning a lot from that people from all walks of life and what their favorite pictures are and why. Um, so yeah, if anyone would like to participate in that, feel free. Otherwise, yeah, I'm, if you're in New York City, I could give you a tour of the mat as well. Fantastic. Oh, thank you so much for being on Art Curious today. And I loved your book and I can't wait to recommend it to others. That's exceptionally kind. Thank you very much. It was great, great talking. Thank you, folks, for listening in today. I've got a few more interviews coming your way over the next few months this fall, and then we will be heading into the holiday season with a very, very special episode. So stay subscribed, and I will see you again soon. Stay curious.